Hello, and welcome to the Human Entropy Podcast, a podcast where we can discuss the chaos, the adversity, and the triumph that is being human. I'm Felicia Parker, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm passionate about sharing the resilience I see in other people that inspire me to chase what makes me feel most alive. This is a place to be a friend, a place to encourage, and a place to challenge. This is Human Entropy. This is typically the part where I'm going to apologize for how long it's taken to get a new episode out, but I decided that I'm done doing that because life just keeps happening faster and faster. I have to make money, and I'm not making money off of this podcast, so that makes it unfortunately harder to allot time for this to happen as frequently as I would like, but rest assured, I don't plan on stopping this podcast anytime soon. So no matter how long it might take me to get a new interview out to all of you, it's still going to happen. I'm so excited about this interview, but I wanted to give fair warning that this episode discusses a lot heavier topics than I've shared in the past, including childhood trauma, domestic violence and abuse, um, anxiety, homicide, and loss. So just a warning there. I was first introduced to Monica by a mutual friend of ours named Marvin when he told me that she would be a great person to share her story on this podcast and I had no idea what I was in for but I'm so thankful that we were connected because I've been impacted and forever changed by her story. She sent me a copy of her book and as hard as it was to read I think that everybody should read it. The cool thing Um, about her memoir is that she's sharing what it was like to live in a home of domestic violence through a child's eyes. She retells the horrific journey that she and her mother and her siblings endured from her stepfather. So in this episode, we will be talking about exactly what happens in the book, not leaving anything out. So if the book interests you and you don't want to know what happens, Um, I would strongly recommend buying this book and reading it and then coming to listen to our interview. And I'll um, link the book in the episode notes, but it's called The Third Return by Monica Medina. And you can get it at Target, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, many other places. Lastly, I wanted to offer my condolences to my sweet friend Jane's family, um, If you've listened to most of my interviews, then you would have heard my very moving and inspiring interview with her about her battle with cancer. It's my most listened to interview, which I think is a testament to just how many people were drawn to her and to her rebellious hope and her truth. After the interview, she became basically a global superstar after she got the golden buzzer on America's Got Talent in 2021. Therefore, this is not news, but Jane passed away in February this year, and I just wanted to share my deepest sympathy and heartache with everybody who feels it too, because we now know that she touched the lives of many. So Jane, um, I'm so thankful to have known you, and thankful to have been inspired by you, and I feel your absence, and I hate that This is the outcome that we've all experienced on this side of eternity. 
but I remind myself of a healed, cancer-free version of you that's somewhere beyond here, and I'm, I'm thankful that you get to be in that place, but I do miss you a lot. Ugh, and so, we'll see you soon. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. It's so good to see you, and I'm so excited um, that we are finally doing this because it's taken so long for (laughs) my schedule to not go haywire, I guess, but um, I appreciate you being patient with me. (laughs) No, thank you for being patient with me because there was stuff on my end where it just didn't work out some days, and like life just got in the way, and stuff came up, and I was like, I am just not in the place, like, (laughs) and that will that will happen. That is life and it's all good. Exactly. Thank you. So thank you. Yeah. We're on the same page with that. Yay. Um, okay. So if you recall on the phone, (laughs) one of the times we were on the phone, um, I told you that I had kind of a funny lighthearted thing that we could start with because I have a funny story to tell you and it's about your book or your book is involved. So Okay, I want to hear it. It might make me sound cocky or something. I'm not. But the um, <laughs> the place that I always go and get my oil changed at, yeah. I get on every single time I go in there, every time. And so uh-huh. I went in intentionally, no makeup, and with your book, and you had just sent it to me. So I'm like, if I'm reading and if I'm not as cute, maybe no one will bother me. <laughs> yeah. People that will hear this don't know, but we know that you sent me that book before it was officially out. <laughs> yes. So that's a key factor to this story. But <laughs> lo and behold, some guy tried to tell me that his sister has read the book that I'm reading. And it was your book that wasn't out yet. He goes, my sister's read that book. She's read it like 500 times. She loves it. It's one of her favorite books. And I was so, <laughs> I was like, this book, this one right here. He was like, yeah. I'm like, this book isn't out yet. <laughs> he was like, yeah. <laughs> I know. He was like, what? Uh, oh, 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 okay. Uh, I'm thinking of a different book. How you doing? <laughs> I'm just like, dude, <laughs> isn't that so goofy? Nice save my man. Nice save. Yeah, <laughs> like, oh, you're thinking of a different book. Psh. It was yeah, so, right. It was so funny, but that is hilarious. Oh my gosh, you're like really hmm, this one right here. <laughs> I know. I'm like, anyways, nice little lighthearted story to kick the whole interview off with. I'm just really excited about it because I don't think that I've covered something that I feel as strongly needs to be discussed. You know what I mean? Like, I love to share people's oh. stories, but I don't know that I've shared a story where it's like this will help save someone's life. If we share this story, this will, oh, you know, wow. I, I think I have loved the people that I've had on and they have amazing perspective and things to share, but mm-hmm. this is a different category of its own. Um, and so I'm really wow. excited that you're, I'm excited that we got connected in the first place and that <laughs> this is able to happen now. Um, yeah. So, no, yeah. Um, I sent you the talking points and I haven't pulled up, but I would love if you, however you want, however much you want to share of it, just a brief summary of what your book is about. 
Yeah. Yeah. So a brief summary, because there's a lot, there's a lot, and I can go in so many different directions, but the briefest summary I usually tell people is that it's a story about domestic violence, but it's not told through the survivor's perspective. It's told through the child's perspective. That's watching the mom go through it all, um, to put it simply. And, and when you get that perspective from the children, I think it just opens up a whole new world of what else is going on in domestic violence. Like, I feel like we thought maybe we knew everything because, you know, we've read so many books about, you know, the the woman and what she's going through um, and her struggle to leave and return and the emotional battle. But when you really read a book like this through the child's perspective, you see such a different like layer to the whole issue, to the whole topic. And I think that that's really illuminating and has been illuminating for a lot of people mm-hmm. um, just to see that that journey and what the child goes through as a, you know, as a you know, small, small child when you're like three, four years old, all the way up into like adolescence and adulthood, you know, 18, 20 now um, and what that looks like. So that's to put it briefly. (laughs) This is a side question, I guess, that I'm asking. But when we spoke on the phone, you told me the, the summary of the journey of being in a household like that and how it unfortunately ended. Right. Life. And, um, when you are telling people about the story, do you tell them that piece of it or do you just, I don't, you don't. Okay. Yeah. I, I just do. wondered, I feel like it's, I know you entrusted me with it cause you knew that we would have this mm-hmm. conversation once I read your book. But, mm-hmm. um, so what has that feedback been like when, when someone doesn't know the full story, but they mm-hmm. know that you wrote a book Mm-hmm. you're back from those people what does that look like because you're inviting strangers to yeah. that that is unfortunately what took place right right so a lot of people who haven't like known that that's what it was about but they're still intrigued by the story because they're like oh it's about domestic violence whoa already a heavy subject mm-hmm. and they know me they're like you're such a bright like light person like how is this book coming from you mm-hmm. um so they really want to read it anyway and then when they come back to me later on they're really just like oh my god i had no idea yeah <laughs> they're just like I had no idea. And then they have so many questions, you know? (laughs) Well, we can get to how bright of a person you are later, but I I can a thousand percent see, I wasn't expecting you to tell me that over the phone. I've like heard you say domestic violence. And then when you told me what happened, it was like, oh, because there's such, um, I want to get the word right. There is, there's a stillness in your voice even just over talking to you on the phone and there's a stillness in your writing too. So either way, whether someone's talked to you or not, or they just are reading who you are through your story, it's Mm -hmm. not at all what you're expecting. Because of course, when someone is hearing a story or reading a story, you want it to end happy. Yeah. There are happy endings to this story. I mean, you writing a book is a huge part of it and Mm -hmm. telling people about your mom's story, but um, Mm -hmm. you're just not, you're not expecting it. You're not wanting it. So right, right. Um, on to the next talking point, 
um, kind of falling into what we were just discussing, but at what point did you know you wanted to share your mom's story? So it's very strange. I've gotten this question a lot and I have two answers. Okay. So I always had a feeling like as this was going on, as my stepfather was in our lives and just causing mayhem, I always felt like this is such a bizarre life. I was like, I'm going to tell people about this one day, Mm. you know? And I just always had that feeling. I was like, this is so not normal. This is so bizarre. This is so strange. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to tell this story one day. Yeah. But that was just like, you know, brief and, you know, never gave it any thought. Mm -hmm. Um, But then the final time where I was like, I really know that I'm going to write this story is when, um, and I'm sorry to anyone for any spoilers here, but after, after we had our seven year court case, you know, um, and we finally put that to rest and that was finally over and our family finally had peace and relief. Um, then I felt like that whole chapter of my life was done. Mm -hmm. like that it like and it had a concrete ending too like a concrete door had closed on that chapter and I you know with my stepfather being put away and us getting that guilty verdict I was like I'm I'm gonna write this story because if this is the ending then like what an amazing story to tell like so that, that's when I knew I was like, I'm going to write this book. So maybe like just a couple months after court had actually ended, it was like a whole slew of things changed for me. I decided to like quit the job that I didn't like. I broke up with a boyfriend that I wasn't really sure about. I moved, like I did a lot of stuff and like tried different careers. Like everything just changed. Yeah. And I was unemployed intentionally mm-hmm. for three months just to write this book. And like, I just took that time to write it and get it done. And then, you know, see what came of it. (laughs) That's interesting. You say that you kind of always knew that you would want to tell it because you knew that the situation wasn't good or wasn't, I don't know if you use the word normal, but like, this can't be what is normal. Yeah. Your stepfather's name is Ian. What, at what point did you realize that he wasn't safe and also on top of what you just mentioned, at what point did you have a realization of like, this can't be normal. This isn't like everybody else's house is not like this. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually very young. I was probably like four years old when I had that realization that this is not okay Mm -hmm. and something's wrong. Um, and, and I think that was, yeah, again, when I was young, I was four years old. We were living in our very first house together on Mozart in the south side of Chicago. I honestly think that it was after the first, because I know you've read the book, so I can spoil some things. After they had had their first major dispute when he had shot her in the hand, Mm -hmm. and then we came, you know, we separated from him, but then eventually he came back into our lives. Mm -hmm. I think after that is when I realized I was like, this is not normal. I didn't, I expected as a child for that to be the last time I ever saw him, but you know, he came back into our life after doing something so horrible and causing such fear in us. And I was, that, that's when I really knew I was like, this isn't, this isn't normal. Yeah. And that's between 
what was right and what was wrong really lasted like a long time. Yeah. I, I can only imagine because of what, I mean, I can grasp it a bit because I have read what you experienced, but it seems so even say if he wasn't violent physically, (laughs) the emotions that you were put through with his back and forth, even if, even if he never laid a hand on anybody, the way that he made you, I mean, you can feel it in your writing and I have not experienced that at all. Um, the, the physically violent part, but my mom was married to a man who I felt like I can't be me. I love your description. It was getting me teary when I was reading it. Cause it was like just you and your brother and your mom and your older brother as well. Um, cause you have two brothers when you described when, when he, when your stepfather was not around, you guys could be you. And yeah. that really resonated with me under the surface, insecure, small man is coming in and needing to put everyone else around him down and make them feel smaller than he does. And it's like, you just feel the tension and, um, immediately. Yeah. yeah. And and so I, back to what you're saying of like, you knew that it wasn't normal after he had done something so awful, but he was coming back and back in your life. And then back to that, that fear again, it's like, add in the physical violence piece of it. And then of course, like it just reading it was, I mean, I've told you it was hard to read. Um, but I, I think it's so important that it is told from your perspective because how, um, eye opening it's eye opening. If you hear from a survivor and this, this is, I mean, I'm sure someone's done it, but I've not heard or read of if told from a child's perspective who it is your parent that's being abused in that way and you have to sit and watch and not know what to do not really be able to do anything because of the situation it feels so helpless too like just so helpless because you like you're again you're watching your parent go through this and you're struggling emotionally and you can do nothing but listen. Like there were many nights where like I would hear, uh, you know, a terrible, what I knew was a terrible argument starting downstairs because I had an upstairs room. And so like I could hear things, you know, being thrown. I could hear shouts, screams, cries, like all of that. Mm-hmm. And all I could do was just lay there in my bed. Like what, what would I do as like a five-year-old, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. so not it's not something that's in the book, but there were some incidents where like they would get into an argument in front of me mm-hmm. and I didn't know what to do other than just like scream. Mm-hmm. Like I would just scream in hopes that my scream was like loud enough to just stop them. Mm-hmm. Like, Cause what, what do you know that you can do? You know, you're just really helpless and you're hoping you're hoping and praying the whole time that your parent will get you out of it yeah like just get you out of it did the screaming ever make them stop not really no no Mm. I know it's just you're helpless you're just helpless you know and that's why we like whenever we did have like time alone as I got older like me and my mom and my younger brother our alone time would be in the car like our car rides together 
Mm-hmm. And we would take that opportunity to be like, mom, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And like, let her know how we felt like openly and honestly. And that was our, that was our time, you know, but it again had to be very secluded and tiptoed around and, you know, s- strategized and planned. It's just, it's no way to live. That has to just add obviously to the tiptoeing around this I'm calling him a psycho. I can't stand him. I don't know who he is, but obviously. Yeah, no, he was a psycho. He's a psychopath. Yeah. And yeah. no, so, yeah, it, having a tiptoe around a psycho, like mm-hmm. when your brain isn't even developed yet and you're having to grasp that this person isn't safe when I'm around him. Okay. I get a window here. Let me try something to, mm-hmm. to make change happen. Um, right. That's it. And you yeah. just keep using that window. You have that tiny little window or those five minutes and you just keep using it and you don't know how often it comes. Maybe it's like once a week, you know, um, but you keep using it. And we did, we kept using that little window every chance we get to let mom know, like, this is how we feel. We're scared of him. We were, we're afraid, um, you know, and then it was over and then we would use that window again. But, you know, there's only, you can only do that so much. Um, And I talk about this in the book about how, you know, getting to a certain point in like my maybe like young adolescent years where I was like, I didn't really believe my mom when she did say that she was going to do something anymore. You know, again, we had talked about it for so long. So when she finally did say like, I'm, I'm, I'm planning, I'm going to plan to leave him. Um, I was just kind of like, yay, mom, but also like, I'll believe it when I see it, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I was going to ask what, yeah. Were there points where you kind of just go numb to yeah. the fact that it continues to happen? Yeah. Yeah. You really yeah. do. You kind of just, you can it's really unfortunate and terrible and sad, but you learn to kind of just like quiet that hope sometimes and just accept that this is your life this darkness, this fear, this is your life. And while you might want to hope for something, you just, you don't have control of it. So you kind of just have to say like, I can't entertain that right now. It's called the third return. And that's symbolic because you guys had left him many times and he had come back many times. So Mm -hmm. um, I believe it was when you guys had left second time I think and y'all had gotten an apartment and he didn't know where you were right then oh heart hurts so bad you came home and he's just sitting in your kitchen he's just there yes and so and then and your mom has not got that that freedom glow that she had that new that new self that she had she just is back to how she had to be around him Um, and there's that panic, obviously as the reader, there's panic in your narrative of it, experiencing it firsthand, but you, you talked about having that anxiety in your teenage years when when you guys were back after that longer stint of time away from him. Yeah, there was definitely when he came back, that anxiety of like, all right, you already knew, or like, I already felt that this was a bad idea. And so any sound, any noise, any yes, thing yes. 
yes. would just trigger me and I would be on alert. Like I could not relax if they were even just having like a mild, quiet, nice conversation in the kitchen. I would be at the door, like my bedroom door, just listening, just making sure waiting for something to happen, having my phone nearby, like 911 dialed and like ready to press send just in case. Like it was nuts. Couldn't even like shower, like a time where you're supposed to just like relax and decompress. Like I say in the book, like just entertain random thoughts. I couldn't do that. I was like, if I heard something drop, I would turn off the shower. I'd run out dripping water everywhere and be by the door. And if I didn't hear anything, I would be like, mom, mom, are you like, are you out there? And everything would normally be fine. And she'd be like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, nothing like nothing. (sighs) And that's it. But like also just having that anxiety and one not knowing that it was anxiety, like not knowing to call it anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, my mom not knowing, like I didn't open up to her about that. I didn't open up and share like, this is what I do when I'm worried or, you know, like, so nobody knew any of this. I was know? about to ask, were you able to tell anybody that you, you were uneasy if you didn't know that it was called anxiety, if, like you didn't have anyone to tell? No. Well, it just never occurred to me that this was something to tell. I was like, this is just normal. I was like, this is just what I have to do, like to be protective and blah, blah, blah. Like, but it was like really intense anxiety and I'm not an anxious person like at all, but put in situations. Yeah. Very severe anxiety. Can you, um, walk me through that longer stint of time away from him. Cause well, we know, um, he was put in prison, um, for a chunk of time, four years, I think. Right. And, And you, you guys were still in the house, essentially waiting for him to come home because he's making all these promises to you, to your mom. I'll be different. I'll be better. I love you. I don't want to lose you. Yeah. In that time, you guys were able to have peace because you were expecting something better to come back in him, but you also weren't around him. So you got to have that peace and that, that, Mm -hmm. that what we described, like we can be ourselves. It's just mom and us. Could you talk about when your mom decided to leave him after he came back from prison and what it was like when you guys did go somewhere? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, he was away for those four years and it was the first time that we had like such extensive time away from him. Mm -hmm. So all of that tension that we were used to feeling that became normal to us went away mm-hmm. and it was kind of weird. Now we were How in this like, you when he went to prison. I think I was like 12 or so, like just so going right. into like, uh, like fifth grade or so, however old you are at fifth grade. Okay. So. <laughs> uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of different time, yeah. like periods and stuff, but, um, so yeah, he had gone away. And so we like all that tension just went away mm-hmm. and we were kind of like, Oh, what is, what is this? Like, this is nice, you know? And instead of like having to have our alone time, very secluded, now it could be all the time. Yeah. And that was like such a newfound thing. We're like, 
we could be ourselves all the time now, <laughs> you know, and how freeing and how liberating. And now we can joke and laugh in, in the kitchen when maybe the kitchen was always his place or downstairs too. like just such range, little things that you would never think matter, but matter. And I think my mom took hold of that too. She really enjoyed like starting to just like do things for herself. And so she would go out with friends a lot. She, and just tell us, you know, I'll be home later. And we were like, Oh, that's fine. We're playing like video games and stuff. You know, we're great. And she started to go tanning and she started to just like enjoy, like taking care of herself and doing little things, getting her nails done and stuff like that. And she just, she really stepped into her own and became so like empowered and so, um, independent, so independent because she was taking care of herself and working, uh, crazy hours at the hospital and maintaining a house and the bills and the kids. So I think she finally saw like, I'm a strong woman. I can do this. And, and she embraced it. And we all did. We loved it. Everyone noticed that change. So when he came back at home from prison, we were excited because he had been promising us and he seemed like he changed, you know, Mm -hmm. promising us that, you know, I miss you guys. I love you. I can't wait to come home. Things are going to be different. And throughout those four years, we had been visiting him in prison and he maintained that same, I miss you. I love you. Things are going to be different every time. So when it finally came time for him to come home, um, we were excited. We were so excited. We thought this was going to be such a new life and, you know, things were going to be so great now. We could be ourselves and he could be this changed man. Like, how wonderful. Um, But as with domestic violence, it's a really slim chance that the abuser is going to change in the way that you think when you think. And so... It didn't take long before he started trying to take his control back and set rules, you know, into place because he had been gone. And so now things are going to be how I want them to be. Um, And so eventually the argument started again and he, you know, he became violent and aggressive again with my mom and with my younger brother as well. Um, But because she was in such a different place, she didn't put up with it for long this time. And that's when eventually we did end up leaving on like a a school day when he was at work and the, we woke up in the morning, the house was in full functioning order. And by like two o'clock, there was nothing left in the house. Like it was fast. Um, we cleared out the house and we moved to an apartment where that was going to be our, our new start. You know, that was going to be, if he wasn't going to come home and make it a fresh start, then we were going to leave and make it our own fresh start. So how long were you guys in that apartment with, with him not knowing where you were? We were probably there for like five months. Okay. Six months. It was very short. It was just a few months. Okay. You say it in the book, but can you share how he got the address? So my mom had initiated a divorce mm-hmm. and we, you know, we were always very worried that he was going to find us at this apartment, even though it was pretty secluded. 
um, there was a main street nearby mm-hmm. and we always stayed away from it just in case he happened to be driving one day. You know, we did everything we could to make sure we stayed away and stayed quiet, but it had nothing to do with us. Eventually, uh, we learned that her, my mom's divorce lawyer had mailed the paperwork to his address with her new address on it. Like he had received the divorce paperwork and somewhere on there was our new address. And so I later, later, later in like my late twenties, after everything was said and done, discovered that he came to just meet her in the parking lot one day and it surprised her. And, and that was it. Like now he knew where we were after everything we had done to keep it so quiet and so secluded. All it took was one document with the address to uncover it all. Like it was really, it was really deflating when I think about it. Now he knew where we were. Um, and I guess him and my mom started talking again and that led to the, the scene that you describe in the book where it was like, I didn't, I didn't know any of this was happening. You know, I didn't know she had filed for divorce. I didn't know he had met her in the parking lot that day. I'm just a kid going to school, focusing on, I don't want to do homework and boys and things like that. And so when I did come home from school the one day, I was petrified to see that he was just there in our apartment, like right in front of me, just sitting on the sofa. And I was stunned. Like, am I alone? Okay. Look around the corner. Okay. I'm not alone. Mom's here. Um, I I was just frozen and I just stood there and I was like, what's going on? I wasn't really paid attention to because it seemed like they were kind of on their way out and she left. They both left. They like stood up and left. And all she said was, I'll be right back. And then like, like it was no big thing, you know? And so I'm just like, brewing in that, in the kitchen, waiting for her to come back. I'm like, okay, she said she'd be right back, but we're like, where is she? Where is she? Where is she? I need, I need to know what's going on. What's going on? What's going on? And as soon as she came back into the apartment alone, I was just in the kitchen, like furious. I immediately questioned her and was like, mom, why was he here in our apartment? And she didn't want to answer me. She didn't want to say anything. I was not going to let this go. I was like, mom, why was he here in our apartment? She, I think she knew how I felt. Obviously she knew how I felt, but she was just casually like, we're, we're getting back together. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? I, I, I think I just went like black. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I just saw black at that time, like just completely numb and shocked because I was like, she didn't just say that. Yeah. I was like, that's not what she just said. No. I was like, I totally am dreaming right now. I'm totally imagining this. This is not real. I, I just felt like the parent now asking her questions like, why are you doing this? And how could you do this to us? And just so furious in that respect. I'm just like, did you like, could you not see everything that we've done and, and everything that like, we've done too as your kids to try to help you and then this is like what happens it was oh I pray that no one ever has to go through that because it was it was awful and you um talk about in your book but she she had been with somebody she was in the and I didn't realize that you didn't know that she was in the middle of trying to get a divorce from Ian 
but Mm -hmm. um, it, it had to have been even more confusing because you saw her with this other person who wasn't crazy, who wasn't abusive. So that had to right. be an even more confusing piece of what you're getting back together with him. What? And, and right. it not be necessarily explained to you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're just getting like bits. Of, Cause I'm the kid and she's the parents, but like how much, like she doesn't have to explain herself to me and she doesn't have to share what's going on in her life, which is of, of course, that's your right as an adult, as a parent, mm-hmm. but the effects of it being a child, and getting just the bits and pieces of a story, like so far and few between that you're like, wait, when did this happen? Oh, wait, when did, when did that happen? Like, what direction am I going in? Like, cause I'm following you as the child. I'm, I'm right behind you and I'm following you and what you do. Yeah. So me not knowing the story means I, I didn't know the direction. I don't know your emotions. Like I, it's hard to, for me to follow you emotionally when I don't know what's going on as the kid, you know, and that just aids to like the emotional up and down and the, the, the anxiety and, you know, cause you just don't know anything being a kid and how could you You guys did go back to be with Ian, your stepdad. How long were you there for? Every time we left and came back, it was shorter and shorter and shorter because I think underneath everything, deep down, everyone just had less patience for it. And so, I mean, you do something like this so many times, eventually you're just like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore or I'm over it, you know? And so your, your patience just gets shorter and shorter. And so we only stayed when we went back this third time now, five months, but it was even like two months only before mom's feelings changed again. And she was like, I'm going to, I'm going to leave. And when she did finally say that, because, you know, we went back and so I'm thinking, oh my God, she's on board with this. And so just dealing with that for, you know, those two months where it's like, oh my God, she's on board. Oh my God, she's, she's doing this. Then to find out, she's like, no, I'm, I'm going to leave. Like, you know, she, she had another change of heart. Things had uh, taken place with the other guy that she was seeing. Uh, and or started up again. And so when she did tell us that we were just like, Oh, thank God. (laughs) Like, thank God. Okay. So so we're not really doing this. We're not really doing it this time, you know, just two months fine because we couldn't take it more than that. And so then it was about, okay, preparing to leave that last time. For the sake of time, I guess we don't have to dwell on this too long. And I also want to respect what you want to talk about. What's what's okay for you to talk about right now today, if you want, have the capacity to walk through a little bit of the day that your mom went missing. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I always, people always give me that caution and I thank you for doing that, but I'm I'm as open as a book. (laughs) So yeah, it was, you know, she had that change of heart. I'm actually leaving this time. Mm -hmm. And so she was preparing to leave for, you know, slowly and slowly. Mm -hmm. And it was the end of school year, you know, taking final exams going into the summer. So I come home one Sunday uh, from a boyfriend's house and she, or, you know, I I came home, went downstairs, went to my room. No one was home. I decided I would get some studying done because I had tests the next day. Mm -hmm. Crack open my books. And then just a couple of moments later, I hear a knock at the door. So I go to the door. I realized I had locked the garage door and my brother 
was there, uh, my younger brother. And he was standing there holding mom's purse in his hand. And he was just like, why is mom's purse here? And I looked at him and I was like, oh, I don't know. And then he turns around. He's like, and her shoes, her shoes are here. And I peek into the garage and I was like, oh, I was like, I don't know. I I can't believe I had missed those things. Mm -hmm. So he comes in, we start looking around the house and start finding that there's like food in a pan, like still in the kitchen. Very unlike my mom because she was very clean and orderly. We go downstairs and Gob notices that all his locker stuff that had been in the trunk of her car was now downstairs. So we were just like, what's like, what's going on? So we called, called mom and we got no answer. So we called again and again and again and again for like an hour and we didn't get any response. So I start to get panicky and nervous and I start calling everyone. Mm -hmm. I start calling her job. She's not there. I start calling um, the guy that she was seeing and he just spoke the words that I was afraid that someone might say. And he was just like, Monica, I don't have a good feeling about this. And when he said that, I was just like, oh no. So I called my boyfriend who had just dropped me off. And I was like, can you, can you just come back? Like, I, I couldn't even like rationalize. I was like, I just need you to come back. He comes back. As soon as he pulls up, my stepfather is walking up too. So they kind of arrived simultaneously. And my stepfather, we had locked the door. So my stepfather's at the door trying to open it. And I just see my brother start questioning him. And he was, the first thing out of his mouth was, where's mom? And I heard this. So I jumped down the stairs and I come to the door and I see my stepfather there. And he just looks like I've never seen him look before. He looks panicked. He's shaking. His eyes looked wild. Like his eyes were shaking, which is strange. And my brother's just pestering him. Where's mom? And he says, I don't know. Where's mom? I I don't know. Just, just let me in. And so I'm seeing my boyfriend on the street waiting and I'm feeling this tension building up at the door. And I was like, I I just need to get out of here. So I just opened the door and I go past my stepfather to my boyfriend on the driveway. And I was just like, I don't have a good feeling about this. He's acting weird. He's acting strange. I was like, I just don't know what's going on. So my brother comes to the car and um, we're kind of standing there with my boyfriend, just like trying to gather our thoughts. What are, what, what are we feeling right now? What are we thinking? What's going on? And my boyfriend just trying to ask questions like, well, what about this? Well, what about that? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And then just a moment later, my stepfather comes to us very casually, all, all of a sudden now casual. And says, oh, you should go check and see if she's at a a friend's house. A friend who had lived in the neighborhood. And I just kind of looked at him. He wasn't looking at me. And I was like, yeah, okay. I was like, I just wanted to get away from him. So we hopped in the car and we left. Leaving my stepfather alone. We're driving around the neighborhood. Trying to figure out where her friend lives. Where we've never been before. And I was just like. This is stupid. So we went back to my boyfriend's house, told his mom what was going on, and she called the police. 
So when she called the police, they came to their house, questioned me and my brother about what was going on, and then took us back to our house. And once we went back to our house, they had a discussion there. He was talking with the officers, and but he had been a Chicago police officer, so he knew how to keep his cool in front of law enforcement. And so the police left saying, oh, there's, there's nothing going on here. She probably just went out for a drink or blah, blah, blah. And I was like, mom doesn't even drink. Like she, what? I was like, you don't know our mom. The police just left. And me and my brother were like, we cannot be in this house right now. I just felt like there was a dark cloud over our house. Like there was just some terrible, bad energy. Something was happening and it was not safe for us to be in this house right now. And so I took my brother to the basement. We closed my door, locked it. And then we started panicking and calling my family, calling my aunts and my older brother. And all of them showed up immediately, like really fast. And as soon as they did, it was honestly just like, it was just chaos after that because now there's police everywhere. And now our neighborhood is flooded with, you know, it's getting dark and there's just flashing lights everywhere. And trying to get, you know, I, I was able to leave the house just fine, but my stepfather didn't want to let my younger brother leave the house. So they had an, like a long negotiation about that. Finally, when my younger brother was able to leave the house, everyone just dispersed. Mm. We just all left immediately. And my brother and I had gone to my aunt's house that night and for the next two days, we were just wondering, like, where's mom? Like, and there was nothing we could do at that at that time. So we just had to wait. You say in your book that the, you and your younger brother were just kind of left while your family went to go get answers, essentially. Yeah. And then they yes. came back and they told you that she was gone. Yes. Yes. So for two days, like all the adults were gone. You know, and they were talking with the police is what we knew, is all we knew. So, you know, for two days, we were just like wondering and we had no answers. But myself, I told myself, I was like, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine because I couldn't even imagine life without mom. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, if I can't imagine it, then it's not even possible. So you're fine. When they came back, everyone was just quiet. And they sat us down and my aunt and my family kneeled in front of us and just told us that she was gone. Mm. And we just erupted. Yeah. We just erupted. Mm. And there were screams and there were shouts and... It was just a terrible moment. Yeah. I think you describe in that moment um, that you like wouldn't have realized how, how many, how many times you would hear, I'm sorry in your life from that point on. <sighs> yes. And so, and I told you over the phone, that I'm like, oh yeah, I've never heard anyone <laughs> talk <laughs> about how that is, you know. Yeah. Uh, just a constant reminder, obviously. Um, yeah. And so it is just, it's, it's the thing that people say, but I have a deep 
a deep, deep hurt for you. And I, I hate that, that it ended up turning out this way for you, for you, you know, thank you for anybody that would have to go through that. Um, but how beautiful that you don't shy away from how much it hurts because you want people to know that it doesn't have to end up that way, you know? Um, That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And so this is a dumb question. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. But for, for someone that might listen to this, that has even a slightest ounce of doubt, was there any part of you that doubted why, who, who took her, where she was? Any part of you that doubted that your stepfather had something to do with it? In my heart, I knew it was him. Okay. But sure, at moments I had to think, I was like, well, what if it wasn't? Yeah. I was like, no. <laughs> that was quickly just like flicked away. But, I was like, yeah. everything oh. that was happening in our house that led up to it, everything that was going on, her being happier, her with this new guy, wanting to start a new life with him and, and you know, her saving money, just, and, and his all the arguments that I witnessed up until that point too, you know, cause he could sense her drifting away. I was like, it's him in my heart of hearts and everything that I've seen for 17 years. It's him. Yeah. I know it's him. And especially when you put the pieces together that she had told you in that five month time frame that you were back there two months into that, that she was leaving and making all the necessary preparations to do so that obviously had to have made it escalate, but, um, of course. Yeah. yeah. So not to give him too much of our, <laughs> of our precious time talking about this situation, but did, yeah. did the fear of him leave once you knew your mom was gone? Because you talk about in your book, you kind of stopped hearing from him, right? Yeah, it didn't. Um, because he was still alive. Right. And he was still around, even though after we left the house that Sunday, we didn't see him for years. I was still afraid because I, I knew it was him. Mm-hmm. And I think I was even more afraid of him because I was thinking about what kind of state he could be in having done something like that mm-hmm. and how much more dangerous he could be mm-hmm. right now. Yeah, And maybe he wanted to, like, this was my mind at the time, you know, maybe he wanted to finish things. Maybe he would come find me. Maybe he would come find Gob. Mm. Maybe he would find one of us, you know? And at the time I was old enough. So I had a car and I would stop it to get gas every now and then. And I was just like, what if he sees me? What if he sees me or he follows me or you know, cause he found my mom in the parking lot one day and he used to be a police officer. Like he could, he was just capable of so much. So the fear didn't fully, fully leave a hundred percent until we had our final day in court seven years later. That's when I would say it really, really was gone for good. Mm. Your, your family was kind of the ones that were working with the police to do something to get him arrested. Is that correct? Right. Okay. Once they did, I guess, pinpoint him as the, the prime suspect, they were working really hard for you guys to get him arrested. And I, I appreciated that they didn't move too quickly because they couldn't, you know, move 
without solid evidence of like, this is right. enough to arrest him. They didn't want to risk not being able to later because right. they got it wrong the first time and that sort of thing. But um, you, so your family was working closely with police to get something done. They right. were. Yeah. I know that the detectives were in communication a lot with my, uh, my aunts at mm-hmm. that time, my mom's sisters. Yeah. And yeah. so they, they had a very strong relationship at that time. And they, yeah. cause they wanted to know, they wanted to know what was going to happen with our sister. I'm so blessed that we had the, like the lead detective on it that we did at that time, because he's become like part of our family (laughs) since then. And he was so open and so uh, communicative uh, with us and, and just trusting and reassuring and kind, genuinely cared, like genuinely cared. Um, I love that man, but yeah, they were working really hard for like a year. They couldn't arrest him for a year until they found solid evidence and they called it cir- both circumstantial evidence. So all the circumstances, leaving the money, the boyfriend, all these things as far as like physical evidence. Mm-hmm. So they had found like tiny fragments of like bullets in the garage mm-hmm. that matched pieces in the trunk of the car. Mm-hmm. And also that matched like, um, like reports that the coroner gave from like bullets that he had found. Mm-hmm. So like it all matched it all matched. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there were little things like that, that we were like, if it wasn't for that tiny fraction of a bullet, we might not even have a case. And that was the truth. That's crazy. But they That's found crazy. it. Like, thank God. Yeah. And how many months or years was that? It took your- a year from the time she went missing mm-hmm. <clears throat> and we found out mm-hmm. to them arresting took a year. Wow. And then once again, I know you would think it ends there, right? right. And then, <laughs> and then it's like further emotional whiplash and turmoil for you because him and his stupid lawyers keep postponing the date. Right. Get a, a, a verdict. Right. And, so, and you, so it was a year after you found out that she was missing and then six years of waiting and then six additional seven more seven total. Yes. Oh gosh. Our our attorney said that this was the longest drawn out court case they had ever seen. Oh my word. So how old were you when they arrested him? I was like 18, 19. And it up took until, six years after that. Yeah. So all through college, while yeah. I was in college, all of it. And it's not like he got arrested and then you waited and did nothing for six years. You, you talk about it in your book, but you would get, it, it, it was almost no different than the, <laughs> than the abuse that you guys endured for as long as you did. Cause right. you just kind of have to go numb to the hope. I can't even give into that right now because it just keeps not happening. Right. Right. Oh. Exactly. So it was just like, it was abuse, but on a totally, in a totally different way now because right. mom, was, mom wasn't around, but right. there was still abuse from him. And I knew it was from him because it all felt like him. Yeah. It all felt like him still. And I knew he was behind all of this because yeah, court kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed and rescheduled and rescheduled. Oh, we're not ready. We're not ready. And they had to, the judge had to allow them that time every time they requested it 
Because if not, this is what our lawyer said, if not during trial, if, if he is found guilty, they could always come back and say, well, we weren't prepared because of that time. You remember when you didn't allow us and then it could be all thrown out. So the judge, as much as the judge was over it, our attorneys were over it. The detective was over it. As much as everyone was over it, we were all still being strung along in his game, like in his sadistic game. Like it's sick. And was he in jail that whole time? Yes. Yes. He had to be held. Yes. Uh, So they had to know eventually you have to do something. Otherwise he's just going to sit in jail because you're going to keep postponing it. Right. Right. So so six years. Yeah. Until he found a lawyer that was like competent and ready to take on his case. Um, because a lot of the other lawyers didn't want to take on his case or maybe he, you know, threw them out or, you know, to intentionally delay things. I don't know. So he did have different lawyers in that time, like would change. Yes. He changed through like four different lawyers. Okay. I guess I'm forgetting that, but wow. No worries. (laughs) Yeah. He changed through four different lawyers and we think it was because no one wanted to take on his case or because he would intentionally throw them out so that he could delay things, Mm. you know, but it went on for far too long and everyone felt that everyone was over it. We're trying to get closure. We're trying to move on with our lives. And Mm. how can you do that when such a crucial part of it is still in limbo? How can you do that? You can't, not fully at least. (laughs) Well, you said it earlier. It was a spoiler, but it's in the book. (laughs) I read it. Um, I was so teary and emotional when reading that they read a guilty verdict. Yes. And even more scary with your your whole family going out to celebrate together afterwards and the person asking you, what are we celebrating? And I just love that you ended it with that. But what was that moment like when you when you heard it, when you heard him say guilty? It just felt like all the weight and all the change chains that have been like you've been carrying for your whole life were finally finally dropped yeah like it just felt like release clarity clear like you just felt lighter you felt lighter and I remember holding my younger brother's hand and we were waiting and waiting and waiting clenching each other's hand like so tight I was like I'm gonna make you go purple like I'm just (laughs) and he was like it's okay it's fine (laughs) so So we were waiting and waiting and waiting. And uh, as soon as they said, you know, we hereby find you guilty of first degree murder and and concealment of a homicide. I just looked at my younger brother and we were just in shock. Mm. We were just in shock. And like we were trembling and we were crying and we were happy all at the same time. And we just embraced. God, did we embrace. And and everyone did. You heard cries. You heard sniffles. But you were supposed to wait until the jury was dismissed until you could, like, how difficult this was. I'm like, can they get out of here? Can they walk any faster? No, I I remember them telling you that before you guys went back in to hear the the verdict. And I was like, what? (laughs) 
fuck the yeah. ass out of somebody. Yeah, they were like, oh you can't gosh. be really emotional when they give the verdict. You have to be composed until the jury is dismissed. And then you know why that is? I don't know. I don't I, know. I don't know why that is myself. I think they were just telling us that because we had a lot of people with us in the courtroom. Like we, we took up all the benches and we had tons of people standing. Mm -hmm. So I think they just wanted to say that in case for whatever reason, because we didn't know either if it would be like a guilt, a non-guilty verdict, you know? And so they had to say that no matter what, because if it was not guilty, we would have an emotional reaction that way too. And we could have family that would be angry or violent or, you know, so they had to say that because they just didn't know what it was going to be. But once we did know, and we were holding it in, jury was dismissed. We just all like, we fell to our knees, you know, we fell to our knees. And I remember hugging my older brother and he just whispered, he was like, it's over. It's finally over. Yeah. And I was like, I know that's exactly what I was thinking. Mm. It's finally over. And how long that took to be over, but we were just so, so blissful and so thankful. Yeah. And, and I'm assuming you haven't seen your stepfather since that day. Nope. Don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, to me, not. and he yeah. tried to talk to you or your younger brother, right? Cause your younger brother is his son and then you have a separate right. younger brother is your technically your half brother. Right. That's his biological father making his journey through this even more difficult. Yeah. You know? So is, is, has he been reached out to, I guess, have either of you been? No, no, not from him at least. Oh. Um, and we, we don't want to, you know, yeah, no, he doesn't to. deserve to talk to you guys, but we're kind of just like, it sounds awful. And, but if you read my book, you'll understand it doesn't why. sound awful. You just go ahead and say it. I don't even know what you're about to say, but <laughs> I was just going to say the only thing that we ever want to hear is when he has passed away. Like that's all we ever want to know. That's if when we, when we get notice, yeah. When we get notice that he has passed away, that will be, that will be a celebration for our family. Um, mm. and, and that's really the only kind of, you know, notice that we want from him. That's it. Yeah. Goodbye, good riddance to him. Everyone in my family, my brothers included, they all feel the same way. They yeah, all feel I mean, the same way. He can go rot in the prison that he's in. That's what, like, yeah. Goodbye. Yeah. So yes. moving on from him, yes. um, <laughs> you had when we talked on the phone, um, and this part I know because, as I told you, of the amount of even if it's not true crime, I mean, I I have this hunger almost to learn of what signs to look for in any scenario possible. So wow, that's cool. with, I don't know if it's healthy. <laughs> oh, <huh>? okay. <laughs> I'm just, I, I, I want to know, I want to know what, what studies are behind certain things. Why I think it's because I'm so interested in psychology. Like why do yeah. people do what they do? So you yeah. told me, and this piece I knew, but when a victim leaves an abuser, that is the most dangerous time. And so you telling me that made me assume and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but you, you know, <laughs> you've studied, you, you have knowledge of quite a bit of info surrounding domestic violence. So what is something you've learned about it that you think that most people should know that they might not? So 
obviously there's a lot, Mm -hmm. there's a lot, but I will say that the most important thing, and I say this with so much love, Mm -hmm. um, is that the, the victim oftentimes is contributing to this cycle as well. Mm -hmm. And I know that's really hard for a lot of people to hear, um, because there's like a, you know, don't blame the victim mentality. And I'm not, Mm -hmm. I'm not, Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that I've learned that there are things that they might be doing to contribute, even if it's out of good intention, even if it's out of goodwill, it could still be contributing to the situation. Mm. And in my mom's case, it was her forgiving heart, Mm. like her being so forgiving and hopeful, you know, that contributed to him, her communication with him, you know, and not being diligent about cutting it off, maybe you know, mm-hmm. or changing her number. Cause even when we did leave, sometimes she would still answer the phone or she'd still respond because she felt bad. And those things could contribute to the continuation. So there are just some things it's, it's really out of their control, obviously, because you are dealing with someone who's unstable and someone who is just obviously sick and not well. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really out of your control. But what I've learned is that if you could take a look yourself to see like what are some things that you can change or do just whether small you know Mm -hmm. could be some of those things that also need to change to halt the cycle to yield it from going any further I think that that's definitely in a an important piece for people to know, especially, I mean, I have a friend who knows so much about the way that humans work. And when I am at a crossroads or where I'm, I'm torn and I'm in a place where I have to make decisions, she's constantly asking me, what do you have control of right now? And so that's like, yeah, Mm -hmm. I, I, I see that perspective. And I think Mm-hmm. that's encouraging, hopefully not condemning at all. Like I don't hear it as that, but I'm also not a victim. So I feel like yeah. that should be the the precedent that it's, mm-hmm. it's meant to uplift and to encourage and to. Exactly. Yeah. I really see it as like an empowering thing. Yeah. Like there yeah. are things that you can't, you can do, you yeah. know, yeah. like it really is an empowering thing because most of the, most of the times the victim feels just like they're being strung along in whatever direction that the abuser will take them, you know, and they're, they're at their mercy. Mm-hmm. But if you know, there are some things that you can do, um, that, that could feel very empowering or just enlightening, even if you don't take action on it because of the severity of the situation, even if you don't take action, but enlightening for you mm-hmm. to become more aware of yourself mm-hmm. and, and your contribution or maybe it's not even a contribution, but just your actions, just to become more aware of yourself, that in and of itself is empowering. Yeah, definitely. Do you have any other pieces before I move on from that? Obviously your basics, like reach out for help. And if you have to, like, this has been my experience. If you have to constantly doubt something, or if you have to constantly mull it over and you have to constantly feel uncertain about it, it's probably not a good idea because the things that are right and the things that are good and true, you feel it immediately. You're like, Oh, I want that. Mm -hmm. Or like, that's, that's for me. Like, you know, so if you have, if you find yourself being in this very, Oh, I don't know, uncertain place, it's not a good idea Mm -hmm. because a good idea wouldn't take that long to come to a resolution. You would feel it. You would know it, you know? So just kind of 
I guess if you can like zoom out of your own perspective for a second <laughs> and see the perspective, you know, from that just for a moment and you could see that I've been thinking about this or I've been feeling this way for weeks, months now. Okay. It's been weeks and months. It's probably not a good idea. It's probably not, you know? Yeah. I think people have better intuition than they think. I think it's just really hard for them to follow that and trust it. But once you do, once you get in the habit of trusting it and going with that, you develop a stronger ability to do so, you know, come the next decision. Yeah, definitely. And I think, of course, like, especially if you're in the situation, trusting your intuition or your your gut instinct when there is someone with this crazy power over you and they know how to manipulate, they know how to gaslight, like whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's encouraging as well to hear. I feel like just being reminded, like you can, you can trust yourself and you can trust that it's not a good thing. Right. You're not powerless. You're not powerless. You only feel that way because of how they've made you feel, but you're, you're not powerless. There's so much in you that you can cultivate and start to bring out within yourself. It's just waiting. Like it's just waiting for you to start moving it, you know, to start stirring it up. My final (laughs) point is, um, how do you choose to remember and honor your mom and how are you able to stay connected with her? People believe that um, when you talk out loud to yourself, like you're talking to angels, like you're summoning angels, like a lot of people believe that. Mm -hmm. And that's just kind of been how I connect with her. I talk out loud to her, you know, Mm -hmm. and that could just be like a random thought. And I'm like, gosh, mom, would you like would you do this? Or gosh, mom, that reminds me of you. Or, oh, you would love this mom. Mm -hmm. You know, just like talking to her out loud or like something special I do is I have a a ring. Well, let me backtrack. When she went missing, we didn't get a lot of her things, you know, like the usual keepsakes that you would get when a loved one passed away Um, because we had left that house. We didn't get any of our things. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't get a lot of her things, but one thing that I did somehow end up with was like one ring and one bracelet that she had given me and, um, or that she had had. Mm-hmm. And so I keep that ring whenever I do something special, you know? So if I'm going out for like a public talk, I'll take her ring. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm going out for like a really good date that I'm excited about, I'll take her ring. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll just be like, come on, like, you're coming with me, mom. Yeah. Like you're coming with me on this, you know, in this way. Um, yeah. so that's kind of how I stay connected to her, you know, by just feeling like I'm still taking her along in yeah. the exciting yeah. parts of my life. That's really special. And I'm glad that you got something. <laughs> me too. Uh, yeah. 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 Just something, something that would have been hard if we didn't get anything but we did manage just a, a few small, tiny trinkets and we've kept, trust me when I say me and my brother have held on to them dearly and tightly. Okay. Well, I have <laughs> no more talking points, but okay. is there anything else that you want to share? Any final thoughts? So, well, first of all, just thank you so much for reading my book, for being interested in my book, even um, for taking time out of your life and your day to sit down and read something that I wrote, like how awesome, (laughs) like just very special. 
Yes. Very special. And, um, I just, you know, I'm on, obviously on this journey of like, you know, getting the book out there and public speaking and talking to the people who need it. And one thing that I am getting into is coaching, life coaching. I have a program going on, um, two month program, women empowerment program for women, you know, and so I am developing that, you know, it's very early, but, um, that is something that has my heart and has my passion. So I'm really excited about, about that. Yeah. Yeah. You should, um, send me, I guess, a a link to be able to contact you or something. And I can put it in the show notes on here so that anybody that, you know, is interested in hearing more of your story and hearing more empowerment from you can be able to access that. That would be really cool. Absolutely. Yes. I will send it your way. It's called you beautiful life. And, um, it's just about focusing on you again, you know, all the ways that you might be self-sabotaging or you might be hurt being in your own way, so to speak, um, and kind of enlightening and removing those veils and cobwebs so that you can see yourself more clearly, you know, and change, change some things in your life. So I've worked with a couple people and it's been beautiful to see the transformation in them and see, how they were confused and muffled in their own life one way. And then afterwards they've gone to really trust themselves and like, they'll take that job in another state that they've always wanted and they'll move and they'll, they got engaged. Like they just like made things happen afterwards that they knew were true to them. So it's just been really exciting to get that started. So I will definitely send you the link. Thank you so, so much. Truly, truly, like I said, a heavier topic, but so important and so necessary for people to learn about at at the bare minimum. I just think that you're so brave and it's so incredible and inspiring that you would want to be so open about it and share what you experienced in hopes that it might encourage other people to end the cycle of domestic violence. And so thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for all of this. I will say one last thing too, is that like, you know, obviously this is a very vulnerable thing for me. Um, but I've learned that whatever your fears are, what, whatever's holding you back, whatever you're afraid of, that's going to be your limit, right? Mm-hmm. So if you could walk through that fear and you can conquer that fear, you have just like removed another barrier to your capacity. Wherever your fears are, notice them, go through them. Um, there's a lot more to it, but that's been a very inspiring like concept that I've lived by. Um, and it's been life changing. So, yeah, I love it. (laughs) Thank you so much, Felicia. This has been wonderful. I'm so excited to see and hear the final thing. I'm super, super grateful and appreciative that you took the time. So thank you. If you like what you've heard and want to support this project, if you're streaming on Spotify, it'd be amazing if you follow the podcast and download each episode as you stream them. If you're listening on the podcast's app, please give the show a five-star rating and it will help out immensely. Most importantly, of course, share these episodes with the people that you know. The theme song and audio production by Tip Frank, podcast artwork by Sierra Scott, Lydia Massey, and Kinsey Maroney. I appreciate everyone who's taken the time to listen to this. Until next time.